Hello, everybody. We're, we're really overcrowded tonight, and I just want to let you know if you are among those sitting on the side in unassigned seats that it's possible that McGraw-Hill at some time during the, even, the evening may ask you to leave. And I hope that you'll do so quietly if that's the case, but we'll hope that they don't check up on us. Uh, hello, I'm Roberta Plutzik, Director of the Trade Book Divisions of the Association of American Publishers. It's good to have you here tonight because the weather is so bad. Uh, we're, we're very appreciative. The Book Movie Connection is part of a nationwide tapestry of events celebrating writers, books, and reading this week. The AAP and Penn are proud to be participants in these festivities supported by the National Book Foundation and the corporations and institutions listed in your program. Tonight you'll hear from a formidable group of individuals who have experienced the vital connection between books and movies quite personally. Let me be the first to thank each of them for being here tonight. Uh, the event will be divided into two parts. In the first, the panelists will each present remarks about some aspect of book-to-movie adaptation. We'll show some clips, and please bear with us if we experience any continuity problems in this area. Later, in order to set up the stage for a panel discussion, we'll take a five-minute break and come right back. But please don't wander too far, because we are going to start up very quickly again. And then we'll take questions from the audience before concluding about 9 p.m., in addition to the fine panel, we have secured possibly the best moderator we could have for this event. Janet Maslin is the chief film critic for the New York Times. She has been writing about movies for some 20 years. Recently, a national magazine noted that as a critic, Janet was impossible to pin down. Indeed, her reviews are full of surprises and are underscored by a far-reaching intelligence about the visual world as it is depicted on film. Please welcome Janet Maslin, and thank you for coming. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for coming on a night like this. I hope you find it worth your while. Um, I'm here because I'm always interested. Is that okay? I'm always interested in what happens when a book changes as it's adapted for the screen. Is there a lot of echo here? Can, I'm hearing a lot of echo. Is it not too bad? Okay, thanks. Um, I trust that a lot of you are here because you feel the same way. When a book is like an old friend and it reaches the screen looking like a total stranger, you naturally come away wondering what happened. By the same token, when a film reveals new dimensions to a book you thought you knew inside out, that's a fascinating transformation, too. Connection between books and films is a lot more intimate and maybe a lot more incestuous than it was when Gone with the Wind was a representative bestseller or when John Huston did his best to capture Moby Dick. Reading and viewing have become more interchangeable than they used to be, and books are likelier than they ever were to reach the screen. But no matter how prepared a writer is for seeing his or her own work adapted, the process always seems to have some shock value. I am indebted especially to one of our panelists tonight, Susan Isaacs, because I, who I don't know, just met this evening, because I have with me a letter she wrote me when Shining Through was turned into a film and uh, when I reviewed it. And uh, I, like a lot of people here, I think, know much of what I know about how 
films are adapted and what the end results are like just from seeing what's on the screen. I don't really hear much about the mechanics of the process, and I'm endlessly interested in it. So that's why I saved this letter, and I'd like to read it to you. When a novelist sells a book to Hollywood, she usually is adequately compensated for her pain. Still, knowing your fiction is being turned into film can be a pretty disquieting experience. In this case, however, I was treated quite well. The producers took me to lunch to celebrate. I, I should say here, just, just parenthetically, that among the things that were done to her book, a lot of it was left out. A two-character story kind of became a three-character story. World War II story was suddenly set in the present and had a flashback back to the war. A, a lot happened. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, they took her out to lunch to celebrate. <laughs> Later, they called to ask who I would cast. I suggested Deborah Winger. I knew they were considering her, and I thought she'd be dandy as Linda. That's the book's heroine. They said, good idea. Since they were now convinced I had a flair for casting, I went forward. How about Anthony Hopkins as Edward Leland? Silence on the transcontinental line. This was before his tour de force as Hannibal Lecter. Finally, they told me Hopkins probably couldn't do an American accent. <laughs> when I responded with something tactful, like, you've got to be kidding, <laughs> they said he simply would not do two miniseries. I believe, <laughs> there you are. <laughs> I believe they offered the John Berenger role, that was a third major role, to William Hurt. He declined, so the three-star epic became a two-star film. Melanie Griffith was cast first. Then the studio got a peek at the budget, huge because of the foreign locations and period setting, and they decided they needed box office insurance. They selected Michael Douglas, not only for his talent, but for his phenomenal popularity in foreign markets. The choice of the BBC interviews, this was a device that uh, set up some flashbacks, of having the story revealed in flashback was also, I believe, a bow to the box office. I hear that it's a Hollywood axiom that World War II movies are financial bombs. My guess is by making the opening and end of the picture contemporary, the filmmakers hope to alleviate the studio's anxiety. They sent me two different drafts of the script and listened with what seemed like sincere interest to my comments. I didn't care for the BBC business, but I felt the real loss was Linda's character. I believed I had created a protagonist who not only showed moral and physical courage, but who also was smart, observant, and above all, competent. There were women of this sort in OSS, as well as in the various European resistance movements. Resistance movements. There would have been no need to make her a 90s dame in order for her to be strong. An actress needn't wear a sisterhood is powerful t-shirt to convey a feminist message. Nevertheless, I thought shining through was big and beautiful. Once I stopped hyperventilating over what had been done to my adverbial clauses, I sat back and had a good time. It was not, after all, my movie. I knew that when I signed the contract. Thank you for that letter. <laughs> I think that kind of captures it. Um, I'm not sure that any of us can definitively explain the mystery of what sorts of books make the best movies, but tonight, that's one of the many things we're going to try. Obviously, The Godfather and The Silence of the Lambs have something that Ethan Frome doesn't. And, <laughs> and, under, and understanding that something is what all of us here, in one way or another, make it our business to do. Speaking of Ethan Frome, Edith Wharton could not be with us this evening, but I think you will find 
we have an extremely illustrious panel. We have panelists representing all sides of the book-movie continuum, directors, writers, producers, and even a Monday morning quarterback, me. Whatever battles our panelists have been through in seeing their work adapted, tonight they will demonstrate to you that they've lived to tell the tale. Now, I'm going to introduce them each quickly, quickly and they'll stand up and, and uh, say hello, and then individually they will come up and make their various remarks. In alphabetical order, A.E. Hotchner. <laughs> Susan Isaacs. Barbara Maltby. Ron Maxwell. Richard Price. Paul Schrader. Joan Micklin Silver, Paul Theroux, and Raphael Iglesias. Isn't that a fine lineup, really? All right. A.E. Hotchner. Mr. Hotchner is, of course, well known as the author of Papa Hemingway, his best selling biography. But last year, he became a memorable movie character, too thanks to Steven Soderbergh's adaptation of King of the Hill, Mr. Hotchner's memoir of his depression boyhood. He was trained as a lawyer. He wrote for Playhouse 90. He's had a busy career as a journalist, too. A lot of us love him for his salad dressing and his microwave popcorn, but that's another story. <laughs> Mr. Hotchner. There is a perception that if you acquire a bestseller, you're going to have a hit movie. And to that I say, bonfire of the vanities. <laughs> a, a book is written with words that work on your sensibilities. And the motion picture is devised of pictures which work on your sensibilities. And they don't necessarily ever meld. Even dialogue, the dialogue of a book are words that excite your mind, and the dialogue of a movie better be words that excite your ear. Now, I've been on both sides of this bridge as adapter of books and as an adaptee, the current book that was adapted being King of the Hill. I adapted many of the Hemingway books and I want to tell you a little bit about my experience with For Whom the Bell Tolls, which I adapted into a three-hour screenplay. I had been with Hemingway to see a couple of his movies as they were shown in New York. Uh, we went to see um, The Sun Also Rises. And afterwards, we went out to have a drink, and he said, you know, any movie in which Errol Flynn is the best actor is its own worst enemy. <laughs> On another occasion, we went to see A Farewell to Arms, not the original one with Helen Hayes and, and um, Gary Cooper, but this was a version with Rock Hudson and middle-aged Jennifer Jones playing young Catherine Barclay. 
this time we were walking down the street afterwards and he said, you know, you write a book that you're fond of all these years and then you see it on the screen like that and it's like pissing in your father's beer. <laughs> well, then I adapted for whom the bell tolled. <laughs> Trying to be very careful not to be pissing in my father's beer. But um, I thought I had done it very well because I was in Ketchum, Idaho when it was being shown um, on television. And Hemingway, of course, hadn't seen it. We were driving, along with Mary Hemingway, through the Texas Panhandle at the time that it was being shown, so I thought I'm safe. And Hemingway said, why don't we stop at this little old motel? I think it's on tonight, isn't it? <laughs> so we stopped at a real fleabag motel. The only thing they had was a television set in the lobby that worked with rabbit ears. And he had it brought up to a room, and he and Mary propped themselves up on the bed. But the only way, and I know nothing about electronics, the only way this set would work if somebody held one of the rabbit ears, and you know who sat there holding the rabbit ear while they looked at for whom the bell tolled. So I've been on both sides of the fence. Uh, Steven Soderbergh is really a remarkable director. When we first talked, I had turned down offers for um, filmization of King of the Hill. After all, it was a story of myself when I was 12 years old, and my brother, and my father, and my mother. And I didn't want done to us what I'd seen done unto others. But Soderbergh, although 28 at the time, or 29, really convinced me that he had a sensibility to do it, and did involve me with the various scripts that he wrote. Um, I was on the set in St. Louis during some of the filming, and it was a richly rewarding experience. It, there were things I wouldn't have left out, but then I would have had a five-hour movie. Um, I'm going to read a section, a paragraph, and we've got a film clip here from the book. Now, this, this is a moment when my father, who is struggling in the Depression, has a Ford, old Ford automobile that the Repleveners are trying to get back because he hasn't been doing the payments. And I unwittingly spill the beans as to where the car is. So my friend Lester, a teenage guy who is my mentor, and I rush to the car to try to get it going. It has no gas before the Repleveners get it. And this is the script. Now, I'm going to try to, we haven't coordinated this, and it may not work. But I'm going to read from the book, as you see what Soderbergh did with this um, on the screen. Lester, look. Purple one is that red fern told him where the Ford is. It's in the alley behind the Davidson house, but I don't have the keys. I don't, it doesn't That's have Lester, the mentor. We're now running to the Ford. It took us about three years to reach the end of the, the end of the alley, and I just knew the replevers were going to get to us before we really got going. Lester was grunting and heaving for all he was worth, but we were barely moving. Come on, Lester, that's the way, Les. I was yelling at him. We'll wait a little bit till we really get going here. Okay. Now you're going out of way. Give it the old muscle. That's it. That's the way, Lester. That's the boy. 
I didn't know the, the Republicans carried guns. Anybody in cahoots with Patrolman Burns probably did. The old Ford bumped out of the alley and I turned right onto Windermere, which was downhill. The Ford picked up speed right away. And soon I began, and soon it began to run. Lester pushing, running the old Ford down Windermere. And, and I gripped the wheel tight as we really got going. I stretched up my neck as far as I could and sat on the tippy edge of the seat so I could see. By the time we got to the bottom of Windermere, where it goes into Visitation Park, the Ford had run away from Lester. And I could see him in the mirror getting smaller and yelling, keep going, don't stop, keep going. He could have saved his breath since my foot was about a yard short of the brake pedal. I was really whizzing now and it was maybe the greatest feeling I ever had, but I was scared to death. At the end of Windermere, I turned left into Arlington so as not to run over the curb into Visitation Park, and there were two cars turning onto Windermere, which if they hadn't, I would have smashed them to pieces, or they me, but they turned, thank God. And I went zooming down Arlington, which was even more downhill than Windermere. A car coming out of a driveway almost got to me, but I banged on the old horn and the driver slammed on his brakes and I could see his face and his jaw dropped open as he watched that silent Ford whiz by with yours truly at the wheel. I just kept banging on the horn and passing all the slow pokes in my way. I was really running that old Ford now and I was no longer scared. I passed this lady in a big Hudson as neat as you please and when I turned right into Enright, I even put out my hand. What I wanted to do was to get down to Clara, which was a quiet street without much traffic and try to stop there, but I almost cracked up at St. Luke's Hospital, which is on Enright, before you get to Clara. There were a million cars zooming. The old... I, I was really pooped sitting there, feeling pooped, and that was when the hand reached in and grabbed me. Gotcha. I jumped a mile. I want to thank Mr. Hotchner for just a lovely illustration of uh, why filmmakers and writers speak such different languages and how hard sometimes it is to get them in sync and how interesting it is when, when they are in sync in that way. Anyway, uh, I also hope, I'm, I'm glad to have heard what Hemingway thought about film adaptations, but I hope that's not the last, last word this evening. Um, Ms. Isaacs. Susan Isaacs writes best-selling books that were just made for the movies. Sure enough, a couple of them have become movies, compromising positions in 1980 and shining through in 1988. Ms. Isaac's books are so lively and colorful that they ought to travel to the screen very easily, and she can tell us whether or not that's what happens. She's also the screenwriter and co-producer of Hello Again. She's active in the National Coalition Against Censorship, and she was recently elected to the board of Penn. Susan Isaacs. Uh, I thought I'd talk to you tonight about movies versus product. Um, let's talk about what a movie is first, an, an adaptation here. Um, essentially, it's a good story that makes you want to put your thumb in your mouth, that, that, that feeling of, of absolute absorption. Um, 
it should be a mesmerizing experience and also a single vision uh, where you're not aware of any artifice but of the story itself. You're so drawn in. You're not aware of any, um, there's no homage to Truffaut. It's nothing about art about art. Um, and it does never calls attention to its own cleverness because what that does is push you, push you outside of the story. Um, product, well, let's talk about product now. Product um, can just be a, a schlock horror movie, uh, you know, Marvin the Mutilator or something like that. Um, but more likely, and, and again, it's happening more and more, Hollywood, of course, always, always looked um, to novels, to the classics, um, and, and there were great adaptations of those. Um, but now, um, as Mr. Hotchner said, people, people look at looking to them because they think a great book or even a not-so-great book will make not only a great movie, but a, an enormously profitable. And enormously is, is I think, the, the word here, that they want an enormous return on their investment. Um, also, um, the powers that be, uh, the studios, um, truly seem to believe that they have the blueprint for making a good um, film. Uh, they can outsmart the viewers with their own, meaning the studio executive's cleverness, and by doing so, um, they can control the market. Um, and really, thanks to um, Mr. Iglesias, I'm, uh, who, whose great novel, uh, Fearless, became the great movie, Fearless, um, I'm doing my last novel, uh, after all these years, on, on spec, um, mainly because I've been involved in the studio process before. Um, and you get terms like, let's juice this premise to its max. Um, and and there's, there's nothing, there's nothing about, about telling a story. The story gets lost. Um, Ms. Maslin, of course, you know, read, read my letter, um, so I won't go into um, a lot about it, but let's, let's just show the clip of, of that part of that BBC interview that, that starts the movie Shining Through. Oh, is it working? I always wanted to say let's show the clip. So now, now I've done it, <laughs> and nothing happens. Well, all right. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, when did you first become interested in it? The movies. There they are. Uh, let's not show the clip because um, it, it's the wrong part of the clip. But anyway, the, the, <laughs> you, you saw that, that vision of, of, you know, the BBC interview, um, and she's in a TV studio at that point about to look back. And, I mean, it's, we know it's Melanie Griffith, but it, it looks odd and takes a while to figure that it's not Melanie Griffith on prednisone, but... <laughs> but rather Melanie Griffith made up to look 
a great deal older. Um, I, I'll tell you why I thought that was a, a really bad mistake. Um, it, it's very clever and it, and it does cushion, cushion it in, in the contemporary, but suddenly you're aware that they're making a movie about a movie. Suddenly you're aware that this is nonsense, let's, let's get to the story, that this clearly is not the story. And it, it puts you on edge, it, it makes you aware of the art rather than drawing you in. Um, so I, had, I did not have any part of this other than, um, as Ms. Madeline mentioned, I, I, I did get a, a lovely lunch um, out of it uh, at the Russian Tea Room. And <laughs> so that's, that's very nice. Um, <laughs> the, the first movie I, I, I made um, was Compromising Positions. And um, I was very involved with this. Uh, Warner Brothers bought it originally after five years and I believe six teams of screenwriters, they hadn't made it. And the, the rights reverted, or you know, as I say in Hollywood, reverted back. And um, uh, so my agent suggested I, I sit down with Frank Perry who had initially expressed interest in wanting to direct it. I knew that he had been um, involved in, in filming um, Diary of a Mad Housewife, Play It As It Lays, The Swimmer, so that, that he, had, he was obviously comfortable in, in, in working uh, in adapting fiction. Um, what the good thing that happened was that this movie was independently financed. So it began with me as writer um, I had never seen a screenplay before I decided I was a screenwriter, uh, but Frank showed me a couple, and I mean, it's essentially a form that could be mastered by a chimpanzee in 15 minutes. It's, um, it's, it's do you see this movie in your head? Is this a movie? Is this separate f from the book? Um, my only collaborators were Frank, and then later on, Susan Sarandon, and the other actors, uh, Judith Ivey, Raul Julia, Mary Beth Hurt, uh, Anda Salvo. So I, I had just fabulous people to work with, and, and it was a true um, collaboration. Um, Sarandon wanted it to be more of a, a political feminist statement, um, and it became that. Uh, Frank Perry wanted to make it more satiric, more biting in its social satire. We did that. Um, for, for me, I felt a very strong responsibility just to the mystery genre to keep it a mystery, but it was also about love, and, and we lost that, um, I think in part because Sarandon wanted it to be a feminist statement and not about a man and a woman involved with each other. But one of the things that we kept that was so important to the book and, and so important to me as screenwriter was the, um, the friendship. And so we, I have a, a, a clip which really captures not, a, not just the loyalty but the fun these, these two dames have together. Isn't it incredible? I can't believe it. Did you hear? 
Obviously not. What? Bruce Flexstein was murdered. The dentist? The, the one I just went to see? Mr. Slick with all the gold chain? Dr. Slick. A homicide. I just, I just saw it on television. Well, did they have any idea who did it? Well, they didn't say. I don't know. I, maybe it was an addict looking for drugs or, or uh, someone whose gums were still bleeding after $50,000. That's too boring. Probably somebody he was humping. I heard that gum surgery took second place for old Brucey. Well, he did seem a little overly friendly, but I never thought for a second that he actually, you know, meant it. Judith, do you think that every man who talks to you wants to establish a dialogue? I mean, what do you expect him to do? Hang it out his trousers and wave it at you? Oh, that'd be a fair indication. But why would one of his women want to kill him? Maybe he wouldn't go down on her. Does you think murder is just a little bit excessive? I most certainly do not. Um, what, what I felt that, um, and of course this is self-serving, but what I felt that this film retained was, um, was the story and the sense of character. And that's largely because there were not, I think, a lot of uh, studio executives talking, talking about third act story structure or something like that. Movies can take a lot, novels can take a lot of damage. Um, Wuthering Heights, however, still works, even though uh, Heathcliff and Kathy wind up walking in the clouds at the end. Um, the Pelican Brief, um, it, it's more intelligent, it's better paced and more textured than the, the characters and more textured than the novel, um, but it doesn't work because you can see the notes on the side of the script. You can hear the story meetings. You can feel a clever plot twist coming at the end of the scene and you wait, you wait expectantly um, because it's a product and you, become a collaborator, you the audience become a collaborator um, with the filmmakers and, and your partners in the game of, of, of what's, uh, what's going to be the next doozy of a plot point. But product is manufactured. Product is concrete and steel. It's a construction. What I want to do both as a screenwriter and as a novelist whose work gets adapted is to, ha is to write or to have a movie, because movies are flesh and blood. Thank you. Barbara Maltby, most recently the producer of King of the Hill, started out as a script reader for Robert Redford's production company, she had the foresight to see that ordinary people might make a good film. She also helped to develop the Milagro Beanfield War for Mr. Redford. She co-produced A River Runs Through It, and she is now developing an adaptation of Mr. Norris Changes Trains, a novel by Christopher Isherwood. Barbara Maltby. Uh, the bulk of the projects I have worked on have been books, 
some were produced, but unfortunately most were not, as is the case usually, unfortunately. Um, all represented daunting challenges in the translation from one medium to the other. The three movies that were actually made, Ordinary People, River Runs Through It, and King of the Hill, were considered uncommercial projects by the money people. In truth, it was really the, only the reputation of their directors that got them made. I'd like to take some credit, but believe me, it was the, it was the higher star quality that got it done. But the lowered commercial expectations proved a great blessing, however, because they allowed for real artistic and casting freedom. The studios regarded the projects as boutique operations and left us alone, though in the case of King of the Hill, it was suggested that we might set the story in the present. <laughs> the depression was, after all, a little depressing. <laughs> we might even try and concoct another version of Home Alone out of this story about a smart kid left to his own devices in a deteriorating hotel, possibly starring you-know-who himself. <laughs> to their credit, nobody panicked when we remained true to the time, tone, and intent of Hotchner's book. King of the Hill and a River Runs Through It are more than just books, however. They are memoirs, and for both the filmmakers and the authors, this can be a very difficult situation. A memoir can leave a writer far more vulnerable than does a work of fiction. It is their own lives, their own families that are going to be on screen, and they are able to exert little or no control over that process. The filmmakers, on the other hand, can be caught between the wish to honor the real people involved and the need to fashion a coherent and dramatic story out of memory and episode. It is here, and with the best of intentions, usually the best of intentions, that the shadow can fall between the author's conception and the filmmaker's reality. Hotch, being wise to the sometimes twisted process of translating a book into film, took the sanest stance possible, offering his help and support, which he gave generously and effectively, while somehow being able to keep his emotional distance. Steven Soderbergh had been entranced by the book for some time and found many personal parallels in it. It was no surprise that he fashioned the main character, 12-year-old Aaron, accordingly. Soderbergh's Aaron was inventive and finally indomitable, but held his emotions always in check until too physically weak to do otherwise. The book's Aaron, not surprisingly for anyone who knows Hotch, is as irrepressible as he is indomitable. The result is a movie that is darker than the book in some respects, yet one that remains faithful to its source and to the reality of its characters and experiences. I hope we agree. <laughs> a River Runs Through It presented other and additional challenges. First of all, the book was an underground classic, evoking fierce loyalty even from non-fly fisher types. Secondly, Norman MacLean was extremely protective of his story and feared, above all, its Hollywoodization, which could threaten to reduce complex and finally inexplicable characters and events to a simplistic formula. His brother Paul's death was the central tragedy in Norman's life. The book was an attempt to find solace in the telling of the story rather than to explain what happened. Thirdly, the beauty of the book's language is crucial to the transcendence of that tragedy. This last challenge was the easiest to resolve. From the very start, Redford knew he wanted to use Norman's words in the voiceover narration. Finally, the biggest challenge was to find a structure for a story that had no real plot. Fortunately, Norman, though near death, was tremendously valuable during the development process, as were his daughter and son-in-law, Jean and Joel Snyder. Where fact or fabric was needed to give dramatic coherence to the script, 
Norman was able to rate, relate other incidences from his life, which wonderful Richard Friedenberg, the screenwriter, could weave into the work. The most difficult balance to find lay in the definition of Paul's character. It wasn't just a question of honoring Norman's need to main, maintain his brother's mystery and magic. In fact, to make Paul too dark would telegraph his end and flatten the drama. Yet it was clear that Paul was different from the very start and that his family chose not to intervene directly in his life despite the warning signals. The, Rever the Reverend McLean in particular had a mixture of pride in the boy's toughness and a faith that Paul was somehow exempt from real disaster. The scene that must suggest all this occurs near the beginning when Paul, then eight, refu refuses to eat his oatmeal. This scene went through more permutations than almost any other in an attempt to maintain the under understated tone of the book and some of them were quite wild. At one point, the reverend was slapping his son because he was so overwrought, and that didn't seem right. And another, uh, Norman and his mother were sort of secretly amused by the reverend's frustration, and that undercut things. So to get the right tone that was both serious and yet funny was very difficult. And um, most of all, the reverend's power can't be completely stripped away by his young son, and yet Paul has to win. So if you'd run the clip, you can see how we ended up. Grace will not be set until that bowl is finished. Man has been eating God's oats for a thousand years. It's not the place of an eight-year-old boy to change that tradition. God, what rich in forgiveness grant that we may hold fast the good things we receive from thee, and as often as we fall into sin, we look to thy repentance through thy grace. Amen. No, we're not supposed to have questions yet, but I have to ask Ms. Maltby something. Did they really mention Home Alone and King of the Hill to you in the same breath? Is that possible? <laughs> okay. Okay. 
Ron Maxwell helped to guide Killer Angels, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by Michael Shara, to the screen. He began writing his script in 1980, even though a costume drama with a lot of war scenes and no women was not considered a sure thing, or without women, anyway. But the success of the Civil War, the miniseries, not the actual war, (laughs) changed all that. And Mr. Maxwell went on to produce Gettysburg, He's also the director of several features, including Little Darlings, and his directorial credits for public television include Verna, USO Girl. Ron Maxwell. Hi. Uh, There's a book that had a big influence on me I read some years ago called Dead Certainties. Maybe some of you have read it by Michael Shama. different fellow than Michael Shara, who wrote The Killer Angels. But I, I wanted to start by referring to it because in the book, um, he talks about the death of Wolf on the Plains of Abraham as seen by uh, three different people, uh, by a, an officer at the time of the battle in 1759, wrote a diary, by um, the great British portrait painter West, who did the, fa- the famous painting of uh, the death of Wolf at the Battle of Quebec, and 120, 130 years later, a biography written by Francis Parkman on Wolf. And, and Shama's point is that if we look at these three visions, we th- see three entirely different pictures. Where is the truth? And his thesis in the book is that history, even well, when, well, when in, well intentioned, even when we have our hearts in the right place, is a very tricky, elusive business. The Killer Angels was written by Michael Shara in 1974. Uh, it, as you know, uh, has uh, enjoyed many, many printings and won the Pulitzer Prize in 1975. When I read it in 1978, um, I was gripped in a visceral place, like many who have read this book, and it took me years to understand what it was, and I'm not so sure I do to this day what it was about it that really gripped me that motivated me, that uh, impelled me to spend uh, the, the next 15 years to try to turn it and bring it to the screen. There is a mystery to this, uh, which is unfathomable, um, and, a, and, a, and it's a kind of a connected thing. And that's why I wanted to talk about, start this with Wolf. Because in 1863, in July of 1863, as we all know, the Battle of Gettysburg took place, 53,000 casualties. Um, <coughs> And immediately at the time of the battle, um, officers took uh, diaries and records. They issued reports. There was a record instantly at the battle of what took place. Uh, Subsequent to the battle, uh, many of the survivors wrote diaries, reminiscences. uh, And then in the first generation of historians after after the Civil War, uh, much was written on it. Since that time, many generations have gone back and written about the battle, have written about the war, have written biographies about some of these people who were there. And here we are 130 years later, and Michael uh, Shara was uh, in 1973, 74, driving down um, uh, the interstate in Pennsylvania. He had no intention to write a book on Gettysburg. He had written a number of science fiction uh, novels and short stories. And was curious. He saw a sign. He drove off uh, with his son, who I think is in the audience today. Is Jeff Shara here tonight? I thought he might be here. And he drove off uh, to Gettysburg, hadn't really read much about it, and sat on the ridge, uh, uh, cemetery ridge, and had a vision of Pickett's Charge coming up the hill at him. Um, 
and he told me this story. He had a vision. It, he put him back on the grass, and the troops came up around him. He was uh, uh, sent by this vision to the library and started doing extensive research, read the book, and it reads like, for those of you who know it, like you're in the middle of it. You're living and breathing it. I then read it in 78 and started this journey to do it, and then subsequently, uh, around the same time frame, <coughs> late 60s, early 70s, and into the 80s, uh, a movement started known as the reenactor movement, where people would don the blue and the gray and uh, go out into the fields in all times of the year and um, kind of play soldier, but very seriously. And these people are kind of ambassadors from the 19th century to our own time. And I began to see that there was a mysterious quality to all this because, uh, and, a, and a kind of a connected uh, thing of through the generations across, across the years with historians, with archaeologists, with scholars, with novelists, with poets, with musicians, with now filmmakers. And, and uh, even in, in our own tradition of American film, uh, we have kind of some landmark movies on the Civil War, Birth of a Nation. Um, John Houston's Red Badge of Courage, just to name a couple. And we as a people have a, preoccup a preoccupation with this time frame. But the strange thing about it is after all this uh, writing and research, 130 years later, these ghosts that kind of moved in my spirit over the last 15 years, because there's no other explanation for what I had to do to get this picture made, and like many filmmakers, there's nothing rational about it. Uh, these ghosts that lived in our imagination and in our mythic memory suddenly are resurrected. They now speak not only to me and to Michael Shower and to those people out in the tents in Pennsylvania who do reenacting, but they are now speaking to millions of people across this country and millions of people across the world as the film Gettysburg will play around, around the world. And these characters, James Longstreet, Robert E. Lee, Armistead, Hancock, whom I came to know so intimately and came to love, uh, will become part of the consciousness of a whole people. I have to also ask, why does it take 15 years to tell this story, which is so central to our common experience as Americans? And what I, one of the things I came to understand is that it wasn't me, it wasn't my lack of connections or or inability to get it financed. It wasn't even because there were no women in it. It wasn't even because it was in a costume. It wasn't even because it would look like it would be expensive. It reveals something much more pervasive and troubling to me, and that is that we as a culture on, in the cinema don't deal with our history. If you look at the historical films that have been made in the last 10 or 15 years, I'd venture to say 99% of them are, come from Europe or Australia or France, Germany, cultures that don't have any trouble talking about their history and their culture. It's all, all one and the same. People who lived in the 19th century aren't strange creatures. They are flesh and blood human beings, or the 15th century or the 12th century. But when it comes to American cinema, if you walk into any studio today with a historical script, the chances are it'll be turned down because the perception is that there's no audience for this. I find that an astounding, astonishing presumption, but it's believed as if it was written on the tablets from Mount Sinai by the people who decide what movies are going to be made. Then when they are made, on occasion when a so-called costume picture is made, it isn't done with, it, with any conviction. 
It isn't done with any faith. And, and so what you end up with is the Robin Hood that we saw re recently in the last a couple of years, which is kind of a silly little entertainment, which has nothing to do, or very little to do, with what happened in, in, in 12th century England. Uh, I recently was given a script, because now that Gettysburg has enjoyed some success, I'm getting historical scripts. And I, and I, and I got a script on Lewis and Clark, of which I know a little bit about. I know that Lewis and Clark uh, ventured across the, the Mississippi River and, uh, and into this wilderness that, that had not been explored by the white man, that they were exhilarated, that they were on the, on the edge of a new discovery the way that the astronauts were in our, in our time. And instead of talking about what really took place, this great exciting journey, and the fact that Lewis and Clark depended on each other, uh, indeed for their very uh, existence in their lives, the script turned it into a kind of a Beverly Hills Cop movie, a buddy movie, uh, which had uh, no sensibility for the time in which they lived and no respect for it. And uh, I, 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 is it because we are just so uh, uh, egocentric in our generation that we think that all the wisdom is embodied in our own time? I'm not sure. But certainly in 1804, uh, we share many of the qualities of those people, and in many ways they're different. And this was the case in Gettysburg. In Gettysburg, uh, from Michael Shara's book, Michael Shara. Uh, entered the 19th century world with respect and compassion and understanding. And in the book, he treats all sides and all people with respect and compassion and understanding. And that's a place, I think, where we can start to discover things about ourselves. So in the movie, we had to enter into the moral universe of these characters. It's a moral universe we share with them to some extent, but in many other ways, we don't. These people seem very bizarre and strange to us. How can people walk up into cannon fire, for instance? How can generals order soldiers by the tens of thousands to their deaths? There are things about it which are very bizarre to us, very, very difficult to understand. And on the, other, on the other side of that, there are things that we recognize in ourselves. So I think the, it, when you're dealing with a, with a historical film, the filmmaker has a kind of responsibility to enter into the world of the characters. These characters did not know that a movie would be made about them 130 years later. They did not know that some of them, like Robert E. Lee, would become in, enter into icons of our mythic imagination. They did not even know who would win the battle. They did not know they would live 24 hours after that battle. And as filmmakers, it is incumbent upon us to forget the 130 years in between, to forget, if you're doing Robin Hood, the, the, the 800 years in between. And this is something I find generally lacking where, where the historical film is told almost exclusively from the point of view of the time in which it is made. Now, we can't escape it altogether. I can't escape the fact that I'm here now in 1994, uh, and, and I have my certain influences on me and where I went to school and who I grew up with, et cetera. But I think the effort should be made, like uh, Michael Shama talks about in, in, um, in Dead Certainties. The effort should be made to the best of our abilities to go back to Wolf in the Plains of Abraham and enter into his psyche and his dilemma. Now, the scene we're going to see here um, is, uh, I, I chose it uh, because it's an interesting problem in, in, in the book to the film. Um, in the book, much of the power in the book is that uh, you get into the, what people are thinking about. It's very difficult to translate this on film, as you can imagine. Uh, so in, in, in some cases, uh, it's done visually. In some cases, it's done in dialogue. Very rarely did we use voiceover, although we did it on a couple of occasions with Robert E. Lee kind of uh, ruminating about, his, about the battle. This particular scene is one that was largely 
in thoughts. Uh, General Buford uh, leads the Federal ca uh, Cavalry on uh, the beginning of the first day. He, is, he selects the ground on which the, the uh, Federals will, will, defend the, will defend their positions, and he has a premonition of Pickett's charge, but in reverse. He sees that if the y Yankees don't occupy this ground, the rebels will occupy this ground, and he sees the blue troops going up and being slaughtered. And Michael Shara uses this technique. Uh, he, he, uh, he's, he was a professor of Shakespeare, at, uh, and, uh, as well as writing novels, and, and I remember him telling me that Shakespeare said everything three times. And, um, uh, and, and that's what he did in the novel. And so this is the first time you hear about Pickett's charge in a kind of curious reversal. The second time is later in the film when General Longstreet talks to the spy about what he thinks will literally happen, and the third time you see Pickett's charge, in fact, unfolding. So this is the kind of Buford's premonition uh, on the first day. and our people get here, Lee will have the high ground. There'll be the devil to pay. The high ground. Meade will come in slowly, cautiously, new to command. To be on his back from Washington. Wired hot with messages. Attack! Attack! So he will set up a ring around these hills. And when Lee's army's all nicely entrenched behind fat rocks on the high ground, Meade will finally attack if he can coordinate the army. Straight up the hillside, out in the open, in that gorgeous field of fire. And we will charge valiantly. And be butchered valiantly. Afterwards, men in tall hats and gold watch fobs will thump their chests and say what a brave charge it was. Devin, I led a soldier's life. I've never seen anything as brutally clear as this. It's as if I can actually see the blue troops in one long, bloody moment. Going up the long slope to the stony top. See, we're already done. Already a memory. Odd, set 
only quality to it. So tomorrow's already happened and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, you sometimes feel before an ill-considered attack, knowing it'll fail. But you cannot stop it. You must even take part. Help it fail. Sir. We have 2,500 men. They'll be coming in force. Could be 20,000 coming down that road in the morning. We hold this ridge for a couple hours, we can keep them away. We can block that road till the main body gets here. We can deprive the enemy of the high ground. Well, the boys are ready for a brawl, no doubt of that. We'll force the rib to deploy. It's a narrow road they'll be coming down. If we stack them up, it'll take them a while to get on track, to get into position. Is Taylor's battery up yet? Sir, his six guns are deploying forward now. How far back is Reynolds with the main force? About 10 miles, sir. Not much more. Sir, you're right. My scouts report the Rev Army's coming this way, and that's for sure. They're all concentrating in this direction. chance to win this fight that's coming. Understood? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Post the cannon along this road, the Chambersburg Pike. The Reb will hit us at dawn, but I think we can hold them at least two hours. Hell, General, we can hold them all the damn live long day. He's right, sir. Yes, sir. I want to thank Mr. Maxwell and tell him that I think a lot of us are grateful you didn't have to start this film with the reminiscences of Robert E. Lee's great-great-great-grandson in the present day, um, about his great-great-grandfather. Also, historical footnote, Disney is doing the animated Pocahontas. <laughs> when Richard Price has written a screenplay, you know it. His dialogue is unmistakable, and his ear for the vernacular is like nobody else's. Mr. Price is well-known as an accomplished novelist, and he's also been through the movie mill in many different ways. His first book, The Wanderers, was vividly adapted by Philip Kaufman. His next book, Blood Brothers, became a film that I would say barely saw the light of day, and he apparently thinks should not have seen the light of day, but anyway. As a screenwriter, his own credits include The Color of Money, Sea of Love, New York Stories, and Mad Dog and Glory. His latest book, Clockers, is being adapted for the screen, or being, being directed anyway, by Spike Lee. Richard Price. Um, you know, I feel a little bit like I'm in sixth grade on Monday morning, and I have to explain why I didn't do my homework. I didn't read that full letter from Penn. I didn't realize we were supposed to do uh, five minutes, so I'll try not to rely too much on cliches. Um, quickly, sitting at, at um, 
in my chair hearing this news uh, from the people to the left and right of me. Uh, um, uh, anyways, so, <clears throat> so th there are two things that, that I'd like to talk very briefly about. One is the uh, process of, you know, what does a book owe to a movie? And the second is the difference between being a writer of novels and a writer of uh, screenplays. I mean, every, everybody likes sort of collecting horror stories about Hollywood. I mean, they're as easy to collect as baseball cards. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you know, of course they're going to make like, you know, a stupid bastardized version. At least the studios will at any rate. I mean, that's not films. That's, you know, just this business. And, um, one of the, you know, the ultimate adaptation uh, story I sort of semi-heard since it never went all the way was uh, Hubert Selby wrote Last Exit to Brooklyn, among other books, um, was hired to write. Uh, somebody bought the rights to five of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and, um, and he uh, and took an option out on the other five. <laughs> but he, uh, you know, and, and the writers were going crazy trying to get the good ones, like thou shalt not kill, you know. <laughs> And when it came to the one uh, to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, everybody sort of went, went south. And Selby is such sort of like a spiritual nut. I mean, he'll do anything. So he said, I'll do it, I'll do it. You know, and he, he poured his heart and soul into doing this, um, you know, sort of mini story, sort of like the God's Lonesome Dove, you know. And, um, and I, he just told me, uh, he said when he finally finished and he slaved over it as he would have a novel, he, Whoever the producer was, he says he remembers walking into the guy's office after the guy read it, and the guy jumped on his desk and said, hello, genius, close the door, genius. Um, I am now in the presence of the genius who wrote the most brilliant screenplay that will never get produced, and let me tell you why. <laughs> and whatever the reasons were, it's, you know. Uh, I also know George Garrett told me, I was on a panel in Virginia, and George Garrett, the novelist, uh, told me that his... Uh, some, one of his great uncles had been involved in the first Moby Dick uh, that Hollywood had done. I'm not sure if it was in the 20s or the 30s, but I do know that, first of all, Ahab had both legs. Um, <laughs> the whale was killed. Everybody survived. And it, it ended with Ahab back in, in the bosom of his family playing with his kids. Uh, so uh, my, my own experience of, of uh, adaptations... Um, that I had done is I did The Color of Money, which was originally a, a novel by Walter Tevis. Um, and I had read the novel and felt like, you know, it was, I enjoyed reading the novel, but I just didn't feel like there was much of a, a movie in the novel. But I also feel like books don't owe a lot to movies and vice versa. They're two different art forms. They have two different requirements. To use the strengths of a novel as, as the source of a movie is ridiculous. It just doesn't work. Um, so I basically created Color of Money from scratch, just carrying over the character of uh, the pool player. Color of Money came out on the, on the strength of the movie. On the cover was the Tom Cruise character and the Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio character, neither of which are in the book. And um, uh, uh, Walter Tevis had died before the movie came out. Not from the movie, but... Um, and my, the experience of adapting my own material uh, is it's, it's very difficult uh, I find it very difficult to, to adapt my own material simply because uh, 
it's, it's yours, you know, it's like, it's your child. And what happens is like you sold your child to a corporation. It's their child now. However, even though it's still your biological child, they have hired you to babysit <laughs> this kid. And if they don't like the way you babysit, or if they decide not to go out that night, you get fired off babysitting your own biological child. And, um, what happened with clockers is that I had a 600-page book that had to be made into, you know, a two, you know, two-hour movie more or less, and uh, you know, I did thousands of drafts. It felt like working with uh, Marty Scorsese, and it was very tough. I mean, it was a, it was a process of debridement. It wasn't so much a stripping away of skin. It was, wasn't so much writing it up, but stripping it down, getting it down, getting it down. And I understood at this point in my life that books don't know. Books and movies don't owe anything to each other except maybe a, a kindred, you know, spirit of story. And even knowing that, it was, it was terribly difficult. And my first draft was 300 pages, uh, you know, which, which would have made Lonesome Dove a uh, short subject. Uh, and after a year and a half of doing numerous drafts, uh, Marty Scorsese decided that he was going to be the producer, that he wanted to back away from the commitment of being the director. At which point Spike Lee jumped in, and Spike said to me, in all due respect, you know, I, I direct uh, my own writing, so he's going to start from scratch. Um, and I feel kind of mixed about that. I mean, it's a little bit like I spent a year and a half trying to get a piano in the house, Scorsese being the, the homeowner, and he wants it in the attic, and it finally took me a year and a half to get it up in the attic, and then he moves out. <laughs> and then Spike Lee comes and takes over the house, and he says, well, I love this here, but you know what? I really want it in the basement. <laughs> and both the good news and the bad news is that he's going to move it himself. So that's, you know, I've, I feel very, uh, you know, I'm, I mean, I, I feel really, uh, you know, hopeful that, you know, it'll all work out. And I'm kind of glad I'm just not writing clockers for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> Um, I, I don't know how to illustrate this, but I, I really do believe that, that books are only sacred as books. I mean, a minute a book is being made into a movie, it's the kiss of death for um, the people who buy the book to like put the book on a shrine and you know just try to sort of feed the pages of the book to the screen. It's just not going to work. It's going to be Sophie's choice. I mean, the very strengths of a novel are are not two-dimensional. I mean, they're about the land, you know, the land of the interior, the language, the texture of the words, and the psychological, uh, you know, subtleties and nuances and back histories and thoughts, all of which are irrelevant to a screen. Uh, you know, basically a movie, no matter what you say, I think is, is about who says, wh who says what and what happens next. And it's a, it's a story told on a flat plane, and it's all got to be, that's got to be adhered to. And uh, you know, you know, uh, you know. Th there's a sense of like somehow like that books are like uh, you know, re you know, like bones of saints. You know, you don't you know make whistles out of bones or something like that. <laughs> but you know, it's it's just a different medium. And and you know, if if you want to be that goddamn respectful, don't make the movie. Um, my own feeling about being a, a screenwriter is I. I I mean, I, f I, like, I feel that as an artist, I'm a novelist, and as a craftsman, I'm a screenwriter. I feel like, you know, honestly, I just feel like screenwriting is a job. 
because you just don't own what you write. And if you don't own what you write, you're not really an artist. The artist is the person that has the ultimate shaping, does the ultimate shaping. And it could be a collaborative effort, but basically, you know, the writer of the script is never the author of the movie. And I understand that. I got to put my screenwriter's hat on. And um, it could be discouraging, um, but as, you know, uh, you know, you do the best you can for the first couple of drafts, and after a while, you're just, you're just stoned, and you just sort of do, you know, I just feel like you just get pushed around. Um, well, you know, as S.J. Perlman said, and for what? A measly fortune. <coughs> um, The thing, now I've only basically had experience with studio films, and I have to give, you know, that the context that my experience is, is the experience of, like, you know, big corporate filmmaking. Um, it's the toughest part of, of writing what will make people, you know, open the checkbook to, you know, uh, for 20 million bucks, is that it's almost impossible in a studio film to, ha to write a film that does not have a happy ending. If there was a way that they could do JFK and have JFK live at the end, <laughs> they would. Um, it's, uh, you know, I mean, their attitude is uh, a movie that doesn't have a happy ending is like a restaurant without a dessert menu. Uh, it's, it's, you know, okay, you know, they're, they're the guys out there, you know, they're raw and talented and brilliant, but... You know, people leave and they kind of feel like they wish they had something else in their tummy. And, you know, I love those guys, don't get me wrong, but uh, I want people to leave and, you know, sort of feel like they had a good, mo just a good meal. They can go home, they're not going to be groaning at night, but they're also not going to be raiding the fridge. You know, and they, they try to find some kind of like yummy balance. Um, and it, it's tough. It be, it, it's, it's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work, you know, for anything to be made that has any lasting impact with that kind of mandate put on you. Um, other than that, basically, the one thing I could tell you the difference on a craft level between um, writing for, for movies and, and writing for books without having any sort of snide comments is that there's, a, you know, I'm sort of very proud of my ability to write realistic dialogue. And uh, I just love writing page after page after page, be it novel or screenplay. But what I found out the hard way is that there's a huge difference between dialogue that works on a page and dialogue that works in somebody's mouth. And I would bet you anything that if you go, there are certain novelists who I feel have a scintillating talent for precise dialogue, like Don DeLillo and Robert Stone, people like that. But I'll bet anything that if actors try to act out verbatim, a scene in, in Dog Soldiers or in White Noise or something like that. It would sound written, no matter how good the writing. And what I found uh, when I write screenplays is that everybody loves the reading. Oh, this is going to be great. The dialogue is great. And then when the actor speaks, it just, some, it, more, more often than not, it doesn't work, and it's got to be whittled down. Um, that, that's basically you know, the only creative thing that I could say between the two mediums. Um, I'm working on the Lorena Bobbitt story right now. <laughs> and uh, I, the way I pitched it, I said, it's sort of the crying game cut with a Vegematic commercial. <laughs> no, anyways, thank you.
Can you imagine if he'd had time to prepare? <laughs> Paul Schrader, who is certainly the best-known lapsed Calvinist in the movie business, wrote a screenplay for, play for Taxi Driver that truly expanded the possibilities of what could be shown and understood on screen. As a writer-director, he went on to make films including Blue Collar, American Gigolo, and Patty Hearst, all of them idiosyncratic and memorable departures from Hollywood's mainstream. His literary adaptations include screenplays for The Mosquito Coast and The Last Temptation of Christ. And he directed The Comfort of Strangers from Harold Pinter's screenplay of Ian McEwan's novel, so he knows the adaptation process from every angle. Paul Schrader. One of the phrases that uh, you hear quite often uh, in the film business is that uh, we were uh, cracking the book. You know, we would like you to crack this book. Have you cracked it yet? Uh, get, Bo you know, get Bill Goldman. He'll crack it. Um, actually, I think it's a rather, uh, a rather nice phrase. And I think, think that one of uh, the things you do in adapting a book is crack it. And I mean really crack it. Like, you know, you get those trade paperbacks that have too much glue in the back, and you're reading, and all of a sudden they snap right around page, you know, 150 or so, and you've cracked the book. And wherever you open it up, it's always the same spot. Uh, in some way, what you're about in adapting a book is cracking it. Now, what uh, financiers talk about when uh, they talk about cracking a book and what uh, I'm talking about are slightly different things. But what, what I would be after in adapting a book is trying to find the movie, your movie, within someone else's book. Uh, most often, books are either too long or too personal uh, to be comfortable as uh, uh, movies. And you have to reach into the book and pull out a movie. Now, that is a creative decision. You do that as, as a writer. Uh, and I think that when you can see the movie inside the book, not the book, the movie inside the book, and you can reach in and pull it out, then you know where to start. Now, I, I've had different experiences at doing this. Uh, sometimes some books present themselves as movies. Uh, they just fall, fall open that way. Uh, I read this book by Affliction, uh, a book, uh, Affliction by Russell Banks. It's a wonderful book. And I offered it with my own money. I'm going to do it with uh, Nick Nolte. And that was a case where I actually sat at the typewriter with his book. And I just went like this. And, and uh, I sent it to Russell. Russell loved it. Uh, he had, in fact, uh, written it. Uh, and, and the, you know, but the usual case is something like uh, Mosquito Coast, which Paul Thoreau had uh, written, or Last Temptation of Christ. Now, there you have uh, a case where you do have to crack it, and that is you have to actually go in there and find a, find a movie that's inside the book, because the book is either too big or too complex or too multi-layered to be uh, convenient as a movie. And I think the reason that I, uh, my experience on Mosquito Coast was not very satisfactory, was that I was working with a hands-on producer at that time, 
uh, the director was not even involved yet, uh, who wanted basically to telescope the book and basically just, you know, condense it. And I, I don't think you can crack a book that way. I think you have to make some very, very hard decisions about what is the story and what are you are going to tell, what is the theme, and what characters apply to this. And everything else goes by. And I think that one of the reasons the Mosquito Coast became kind of unsatisfactory is we tried to get the whole story in. And it was much too long as a script. It was 130 pages, it was much too long. And, and then by the time a director and actors come in, it's hopeless. And there you had a, a two hour and 45 minute uh, a cut that, uh, and, and, and the movie shows this truncation. The truncation should, should have occurred at the conceptual level. It should not have occurred in the editing room, which is where it did occur. Now with The Last Temptation of Christ, that was a, quite a challenge because you had a 600 page philosophical book. Uh, uh, full of uh, ideas, uh, both religious and uh, moral and psychological. There was a, a, a very strong kind of uh, Eastern uh, curve to it. There's also a uh, Kierkegaardian element to it. And, and some very hard decisions had to be made. And uh, when Scorsese asked me to do it, um, I just said to him, Marty, I said, this is not going to be a very good collaboration situation. Um, this is just too difficult. I'm going to have to sit down and I will come back and I will tell you the movie I think is here and then if we agree on that then I'll write it. And, uh, and after writing down everything that occurred in the book, uh, which took up a stack of legal sheets, you know, and there were approximately 800 different things that occurred in the book. In a, in a movie, somewhere between 40 and 60 things happen. So here we have 800 things happening. Uh, and uh, so I started finding out what the themes were. And I made a decision that the themes were going to be, the, the primary temptations were the temptation of the married life and the temptation of the political cause. And therefore, you are, you, you're, now you're down to a triangle. The married life is the Magdalene, the political cause is the zealot uh, Judas. You have a triangle. Uh, you can graph it. You can, you can start to plot it. And then you can go back to the book and simply excise everything that doesn't adhere. So it's like having a huge stack of papers on a desk and just at one point putting your hand here and just pushing them off the desk, letting them fall to the floor. And then you look at what you have. And, and lo and behold, you have a handful of scenes left. And then you scurry on the floor and try to pick up you know, the one or two pages or scenes that you need, the ones you can't find, you make up. Uh, and, and you reconstruct it and you find your movie inside the book. Uh, and, and then in, in that particular case, you were able, I was able to do a 101 page script out of this 600 page novel. And then Scorsese went on and made it a three hour movie anyway. Uh, and then the, uh, another interesting case was this, uh, wonderful Ian McEwan book, uh, Comfort of Strangers, which Harold Pinter adapted, uh, I know, first Ian adapted it, and it was unsuccessful. Uh, I, I didn't really, it was unsuccessful because no one financed it, end of, end of discussion. Uh, so uh, they hired Harold, and um, Ian is a, is, is a very academic man who is, is very, very kind of kinky in the way the, the British are comfortable, you know. 
It's like you know, garden hose after the after a frost, and uh, uh, so he uh, he wrote this story, which was essentially about these two couples and the the, the inability of um, uh, of, se of the sexes to lock, just inability, uh, and and and. Uh, and riddled with a kind of perversion. Pinter came to the dance, and he threw another theme on top, which was the persistence of childhood memory. He took one of the characters and used him as a bookend, and had a, his story telling throughout. So, so um, that uh, uh, when I came to the material, there was one theme, which was Ian's theme, which was that men and women will never get along. And then there was a second theme, which was Harold's theme, which is um, uh, you are stamped by childhood. And I like both these themes, and I move forward. By the time, somewhere in the third or fourth week of directing the film, I realized that through all of my conversations with actors and with Pinter and with the other various people you collaborate with in the production design, I had added a third theme. Uh, and I had added this as a director, not as a writer. And, I ha and this was basically uh, the Yukio Mishima theme. And I had done a film on Mishima. And this theme was um, the danger of beauty, the, the, the potency of beauty. And that now I look at the film, and I see all three themes sort of stacked up, Ian's and Harold's and, and my own. And, uh, and, and I think that uh, that's a nice, that's a kind of an ideal collaboration, because everybody gets their own sort of uh, slot. But uh, so those are just some of my experiences. Joan Micklin-Silver. She received a Writers Guild nomination for her Hester Street screenplay, and that's a film she also directed. She adapted F. Scott Fitzgerald's story, Bernice Bobs Her Hair, for public television. And she adapted Anne Beattie's novel, Chilly Scenes of Winter, for her 1976 film, Head Over Heels. A versatile and experienced filmmaker with a flair for literary subjects, she's vice president of Silver Film Productions, Inc., Ms. Silver. As Janet told you, my first adaptation was Hester Street, written by a non-living author. Abraham Kahn wrote a novella in the 1890s, and I adapted it in the 1970s. And frankly, I was just as glad that he wasn't around. His story of a young immigrant woman who follows her husband to America in the 1890s to the Lower East Side uh, describes the heroine as being dark, swarthy, stocky, peasant-like, and so on. And when I was doing the adaptation, I thought, fine, and I described her as he had. But then I went to see, um, I think it was called Wedding in White, a movie that Carol Kane was in. And if you know Carol Kane, she's blonde and thin and fair and small and so on. Uh, she came to read for me, and she was wonderful in the film. And to this day, if I look at Yeckel, even though I'm reading the words dark and swarthy, I'm seeing Carol Kane. 
And one of the points that's always made to me is the power of the visual image. It's really too bad to see a film and then go back and read a novel if you haven't read the novel first, because those visual images are so powerful that even if you don't want to, you're going to see you know, Tom Cruise's face or this one's face or, or, or the set as it had been worked out by that particular group and that particular director. My next adaptation was another dead author, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And then I came to Chilly Scenes of Winter. And I thought I would talk to you about that because the relationship of an adapter to a living novelist is something that can be a little tricky. Uh, Anne Beattie's novel was written in 1976. The movie actually was 1979. And uh, she, the, the movie was extraordinarily well received. It told the story of sort of ex-60s people and she caught these young people in their 20s out of the 60s, but not really quite knowing how to put their lives together in the 70s. It was much admired by everyone and admired by no one more than me. I really loved this book. And as a matter of fact, I had a little dread in adapting it because I thought that there would be headlines saying, Silver Butcher's BD's book. <laughs> um, when I met Anne, by the way, this was also a case of a book that had not been seen as a movie by studios, all of whom had coverage, which was shown to me which said, great book, not a movie. Uh, when I met Anne, I hoped very much that she would sit down and tell me that she knew how to Paul Crackett, or that she had an idea that I could use, or even that she would want to write the screenplay, or at the very least, collaborate with me on the screenplay. But in fact, she did not want to. All she was, she said, you just do whatever you think is best. She had two requests. One was that we put Dean Martin in the movie because she'd always had a thing for Dean Martin. <laughs> I was unable to accommodate her. Uh, her second request, I did better. She wanted to play a waitress. And if you see Chilly Scenes of Winter, there is a waitress in the movie, and that is Anne Beattie. She'd always wanted to play a waitress in a movie. Anyway, uh, as I was working on the adaptation, I was showing this script. And by the way, it's the story of a young man who is obsessed, obsessively in love with a woman, a mar married woman. He lived with her for a while, but she has gone back to her husband. So the story in the book, he thinks about her, he remembers her, he thinks about the rest of his life, he's extremely depressed, he's locked into inaction and so on. Um, my own feeling about this was that, that I didn't know how I wanted to tell the story and that I had a perfect actor to play it, which gave me a great deal of courage, and that was an actor I had just worked with, John Hurt. I had just uh, worked with him in Between the Lines, and I felt that he was just right to play the protagonist, Charles. The person Charles hates the most in the world is Ox. Ox is Laura's husband, and although she calls him Jim, he was apparently known as Ox when he played football in college, and of course, Charles calls him Ox. When my husband, who's always my first reader, read my uh, first drafts of my screenplays, he said to me, well, it's all very well, but don't you think it would be nice to have your protagonist and your antagonist meet? Couldn't there be some scenes between them? And I said, well, there aren't any in the novel. He said, yes, yes, I know, but this is a movie, and don't you think it would be nice? And I said, look, it was good enough for Anne Beattie, and it's good enough for me. But he'd planted the seed. So, of course, I did feel that I did want to get them together, and I tried it. Um, that's the scene that I'm going to show you. This scene is not in the book, but a scene that I created, hopefully, coming out of what was in the book. 
And I could only tell you that afterwards, I was always a little nervous would Ann Beattie like this scene because it really had nothing to do with the book. And I was on a panel with her and she was generous and gracious enough to say, if I'd thought of it, I would have put it in the book. So here it is. This is the scene from Chilly Scenes of Winter. Charles Richardson, and this is my friend uh, Sam McGuire. We were interested in an A-frame. Great. We built 40 different models. We modify or customize to suit your lifestyle. I thought they uh, came to a point. Well, Max appears to be a nice, dull guy. But then I'm a nice, dull guy. About the A-frame, you know, you lose a lot of headroom upstairs. Oh, we want a lot of headroom. <laughs> my wife and I live in one, though. Oh, you married? Uh-huh. Mind if I smoke? Uh, as a matter of fact, I do. What do you guys do? I'm a civil servant. Oh, unemployed jacket salesman. I see. Uh, listen, I'll be glad to show you around. I want you to know right She has a choice between an oversized, nice, dull guy or a medium-sized, nice, dull guy. Now, you option that out, pay the sales tax. Poor Laura. You're looking at $45,000. Are you insulting us? Hey, not at all. Why don't I show you around? Great. Come on, Joe. Now, you'll see that the kitchen is directly related to the living area. Oh, that's good. Uh -huh. Now, the walls are solid cedar. Beams are Douglas fir. Mm -hmm. Ceiling is hemlock or spruce. Isn't this the way. same room? As a matter of fact, it is. Where are you living now, Charlie? I, um, I live on Kenmore Road, Jimmy. Yeah, that's a nice street. You renting or what? No, I own my own house. Oh. Ah. How about you, Sam? Oh, I live with Charlie. Of course. Sorry? Why? Does it look odd, our living together? I don't think it's anybody's business. No trouble. If you want to see a traditional A-frame, I'll be glad to show you mine. It's about 10 minutes from here. If you want to follow be me. glad to, sure. <clears throat> hey, uh, don't I recognize that headlight somewhere? Did you, uh, bump into a tree recently? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was... Uh, that was you. Okay, then. All right, all right, good. We'll follow you. Laura? Yeah, I'm here. We have company, babe. Remember that time the guy ran to the tree out in front? Well, here he is. Let me take your coats. They're overlooking an A-frame. I kept thinking... Geez, this guy looks familiar. I just couldn't place him. Uh, she must have something on the stove. You all know Paul Theroux. He's the author of more than two dozen very varied volumes. Said that right. His works include science fiction, thrillers, short stories, and travel writings. Among the books of his that have been adapted into films are Half Moon Street and The Mosquito Coast, which is written by Mr. Schrader. Mr. Theroux, come up and tell us about that. Thank you. Thank you. 
Uh, we're going to see a clip right now. in his pocket. Not before he signed this. You're looking at the new mayor of Geronimo. You bought a town? A small town. Where is it? <laughs> Geronimo! Largest candle up here! Too shallow! Well, Mr. Hattie, we'll just have to experiment. Experiment? Why you want to go to Geronimo? We bought it! Now, it won't be news to you that I didn't write that. Paul Schrader didn't write that. Peter Weir didn't write that. Jerry Hellman didn't sort of hands on it. That was um, the result of uh, the amazing chemistry of uh, movies. I imagined something like it. Uh, what I, what, uh, that's impossible to write. That uh, it's, as Paul Schrader said, it's a telescoping of something that happened. It's amazing. What, when a writer sees his book becoming that, it's magic. It's magic in a lot of senses. First, in the sense that um, uh, uh, Smoltby showed us a scene in which there was silence. Have you ever seen a book in which there was silence? Samuel Beckett's book? <laughs> well, it's more powerful, soporific than the Book of Mormon, that silence. The, you cannot reproduce it. Music is another thing, cannot be reproduced in a novel. So fiction is, uh, when you're comparing fiction with uh, movies, you're comparing a horse and a rabbit. It's a totally different language, a different medium, uh, a different kettle of fish altogether. My episodes were um, uh, uh, rethought. A, a movie was uh, attempted in, by the various midwifery that, uh, uh, in, uh, in Hollywood to be removed, this film sort of delivered kicking and screaming. Um, and the actors, and then if you looked at the, at the early part of this uh, scene, you saw people in Belize. 
My book was set in Honduras, but these people in Belize are distinctly different from the people in Honduras. Uh, these basically English speaking, this is a, a place in Georgetown, uh, Belize, you saw not actors, those people in a bar. They, didn't they look real to you? And uh, didn't that music sound real? And did, did the clothes that they were wearing didn't come from uh, a prop room? I chose that episode because it's so strange. It's so strange to the author of a book to see something reimagined from uh, something he or she has done. I don't think there's any experience like it. Sometimes it works and uh, sometimes it, it doesn't work. It certainly doesn't compare to the, um, uh, the solitariness and the monotony of writing a novel. The novel took me maybe two and a half years to write. During that time, no one knew about it. No one spoke to me about it. All the decisions I made were my own. I can say that uh, in, I've been writing for 30 years, writing fiction for 30 years. I've also written some screenplays. But every fictional word I have ever wanted to publish, I've published. Everything that you see in print by me is something that I wished to have in print. If you talk to uh, any of the people here who've written uh, screenplays, the, the screenplays that they've written uh, that have been produced uh, don't compare to the, the numerous ones that have not been produced. So a, a, a writer, a fiction writer, is fairly represented in the books that he or she has in print. I think that's generally true. If a person is any good at all, the stuff will appear. And so uh, writing seems to me an amazingly fair uh, and um, uncompetitive enterprise compared to the, the labyrinth of, of uh, making a movie. Um, I've written a number of screenplays. One that uh, Janet Maslin didn't mention, which I think is a reasonably good one, is Saint Jack. I adapted the movie um, with uh, Peter Bogdanovich. It was Ben Gazzara was in it. I think it's it, it's a good movie. Came out in uh, 77 or 78. And I think um, uh, that was an odd experience for being f uh, uh, translated to the screen. It was uh, what Paul Schrader said, which is pulling the, uh, the story out of the book is um, uh, well said. I don't think that that was exactly what we did. And when there is a tremendous amount of respect, it doesn't happen. And yet, in fiction, fiction is full of cinematic moments. The one that I would uh, recommend to you uh, is nothing that I wrote, but is written by uh, Gustave Flaubert. Uh, it's in, I think it's chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11 of Madame Bovary, where Rodolphe and Emma are in a carriage. And uh, Flaubert says, he, he describes how the carriage was seen on this street, then by that river, and then by that bridge, and then by this house. And he describes in a paragraph all the places that the carriage in which Emma and Rodolphe were canoodling appeared in this town. And it, it, that little paragraph could be translated completely to the screen. I think um, it, it's a conundrum how, how, uh, how solitary, the, um, uh, but not lonely, the process of uh, writing fiction is, and how much, um, uh, how, how busy, and how much business there is in the process of writing a screenplay, how many people are involved. Uh, I'm not saying that it, it uh, uh, violates the vision, but it certainly, what appears on the screen isn't what you 
isn't what you've done. It's impossible that it can be done by, by one person. I read a, a story by Fitzgerald not too long ago. It's called Afternoon of an Author. It's, it's calls it a short story. It's actually uh, like a memoir of one day that he spent. And he says, and he gets a letter uh, from a producer and reflects on it. It's kind of a turn down. And he says, uh, never any luck with the movies, he thought to himself. Stick to your last, boy. And uh, that's from Fitzgerald, who spent a lot of time working on the movies. Soon after William Faulkner won the Nobel Prize for Literature, soon after, within three months, he was in Rome writing um, or rewriting Land of the Pharaohs. Uh, it's a strange, uh, maybe a strange priority, but he, he, it was money, but also love of movies that made him, made him do it. Um, I think that the ethical satisfaction of movies is strange. The pleasure that we get from movies is strange. There are people um, who get a, a, a tremendous thrill from seeing what, I, what, what is essentially a cartoon or a comic, uh, that, it's, that the ethical satisfaction of movies isn't always one with the um, with with this let's say this the cinematic satisfaction. Janet Maslin started by saying, "Well, uh, why is it that movies like The Godfather get made and not Ethan Frome?" Well, there is a reason, isn't there? I mean, isn't the reason in uh, Marlon Brando and uh, uh, a lot of bombing and maybe the great bloody head of a horse and this amazing spectacle. When we see an earthquake in Los Angeles, don't we rush to our television set? And are we clucking and saying, ain't it terrible? But we're watching it. There's a tremendous thrill in an earthquake, in a fire, in a bombing, in a death. It may be a horrible satisfaction. I'm not saying that's an ethical satisfaction. But there's something in it that grips us. And I think that it's a paradox which um, I happen to have, uh, um, was summed up actually in a poem by Louis McNeese. I, I find this, if you work for three years on a book, it's impossible to uh, uh, steep yourself in something that is, um, I don't like to say unethical, but something that appalls you. It's just, it's just too horrible. One of the great things and one of the horrible things about writing a novel is uh, the amount of time it takes. A, a novel requires monotony. A film, not at all. When a bomb goes off, we always say, ain't it awful? But we're thrilled by it in some, I think, deep resource of our, of our being. When London was bombed, Louis McNeese uh, the Irish poet, looked at it and reached a conclusion um, in his own way, which I think many of us might share. It's the conclusion that there's a tremendous thrill when a spectacle uh, occurs. And the bigger, the better. And it's the spectacle, I think, in movies that, that grips us. And that spectacle, which is the music, the dancing, the non-dialogue, the totally unliterariness of the scene that you saw, or in the case of German bombs uh, coming on, down on London, 
McNeese writes in Brother Fire, when our brother Fire was having his dog's day, jumping the London streets with millions of tin cans clanking at his tail, we heard some shadow say, give the dog a bone. And so we gave him ours. Night after night, we watched him slaver and crunch away the beams of human life, the tops of topless towers, which gluttony of his for us was Lenten fare, who, mother naked, suckled with sparks, were chilled, though cotted in a grill of sizzling air, striped like a convict, black, yellow, and red. Thus were we weaned to knowledge of the will that wills the natural world, but wills us dead. Oh, delicate walker, babbler, dialectician, fire. Oh, enemy, an image of ourselves. Did we not on those mornings after the all clear, when you were looting shops in elemental joy and singing as you swarmed up city block and spire, echo your thought in ours, destroy, destroy. Thank you. Um, as to the way movies sometimes overlap with the excitement of real events, we were talking before we came on about the Los Angeles earthquake, and we were talking about sense around. So if anybody remembers the movie Earthquake. Uh, I'm going to introduce our last panelist now, or alphabetically our last panelist, and then we're going to, since it's getting so late, we're going to quickly uh, open this up for some questions. Um, our last panelist is Raphael Iglesias, who wrote his first novel as a lad of 16 and has been writing ever since. Last year, he adapted his own novel, Fearless, for Peter Weir's film version, which gives him an unusually sharp and recent view of the adaptation process. He's a lively and prolific writer, and he's also a close friend of my husband's, but tonight I'm going to call him Mr. Iglesias. There are several spectacular scenes I could show you from Fearless, but you're not going to be that lucky. Uh, out of context, the scene I want you to see in a moment is the walk in the mall may seem odd because it serves as an emotional bridge for the character of Carla, played by Rosie Perez. Uh, Rosie and Max, the character played by Jeff Bridges, are strangers who share a horrible experience, an airplane crash. In the crash, Rosie's two-year-old son was ripped out of her arms and killed. Jeff's best friend and lifelong business partner was decapitated. Uh, in the scene you're about to see, on the day after Thanksgiving, Jeff coaxes Rosie, still locked up in her grief, to go for a drive. I'd like to show the clip now. <clears throat> you hungry? In there? Remember, we're ghosts. They can't do anything to us. You really let you know that you are so crazy. <laughs> yeah, you should talk. <laughs> oh, Jake, I can't believe you did that. I'm I'm not buying you another one. I am not. Look at this mess. 
I've had it. We're going home. So happy. Maybe I am a ghost. Sorry about the super that came out. Um, being both the novelist and screenwriter of a movie is a lot like being God in the modern world. The director, the producer, the cast, and even the crew come running to you to explain why you've made their world that way. Sometimes they are curious. Sometimes they are confused. Sometimes they are disobedient. Sometimes they sing your praises. What happens most often is that they forget you exist. As for the studio executives, they are sure you never did. That was not true on Fearless, thanks to producer Paula Weinstein and director Peter Weir. Indeed, as far as I can tell, my experience of Fearless's transformation from novel to movie was unique. I wrote the script on spec which is a fancy way of saying I couldn't get a studio to option the novel. Paula and her partner, Mark Rosenberg, bought my adaptation within a few days of its submission. They sent it on to Peter Weir, who committed to make it two weeks later. From the time I finished my first draft to the start of shooting was only eight months. Peter, as any first-rate director should, interpreted my novel and script into his filmmaking style. He wanted to move the first 10 pages to the end. He had me cut a love scene. Neither of these alterations, however, affected the idea, the theme, or essentials of the characters. None of the changes sentimentalized or cheapened Fearless's story. Most impressively, the total effect of his changes made Fearless a, novel, a movie based on a novel rather than a PBS documentary of a novel. He expressed visually internal emotions and ideas that are accomplished in a novel by narrative. I showed The Walk in the Mall to illustrate two things. First, Peter's hard work as a director. I was on set that day, and like most days on a set, it didn't go smoothly. Dressing them all for Christmas caused delays. Our cinematographer, Alan Davio, was unhappy about lighting a mall, especially after having just finished five brilliant and grueling days filming the crash site, and also because Peter would not let him make the mall look prettier than it really was. Rosie had lost her voice from her powerful work the week before, screaming as she was pulled out of a burning plane that she knew contained her son. And that, combined with her heavy accent, made her line as she watches a mother scolding her child, they're so happy, sound as if she were saying, <clears throat> they so abby. 
I tried to help, telling Peter he could change it to, they look very happy. But he, almost as if I were a stranger who had insulted someone else's script, said, but that ruins the meaning. By the time we got to shooting the crucial scene, when Rosie sees the mother and baby, going up to smell the fragrant hair of the infant, we had only a half hour before going into overtime. The picture was already over budget, and I doubted anyone felt, as I did, how important this little touch was to the overall effect of the narrative. I was wrong. On the first take, the child, as is true of most of America, found Rosie so fascinating that he immediately turned his head and beamed at her. <laughs> Peter grabbed some of the toys around us, gave me a rattle and a streamer, told me to keep making noise until it came time for Rosie's line, and we went again. On the second take, one of the extras, eager to make sure he was in the shot, bumped into Rosie as she approached. Peter instructed the assistant directors to keep the extra's father in the background, and we went again. There were roughly 15 minutes left to the day, and Peter, with a profound look of sadness, said, if I can't get it today, I'm going to have to let it go. On the third take, the child watched us making faces and waving toys as if we were insane. For about half the time, Rosie was near him. But he sensed her when she sniffed his hair and whipped around, reaching affectionately for her face. On the fourth take, the same thing happened. Does it matter that he touches her? The camera operator mumbled. It looked great. Less than 10 minutes were left now. Peter handed toys to Paula and script supervisor Julie Pitcannon. He stood up precariously on the store's display case. And when we went again, he did a hilarious jig. The child watched him through all of Rosie's time at his side. She backed away, ignored, with an extraordinary look of love and loss and hopelessness, a perfect look and then walked off with Jeff, forgetting, however, to say the line, maybe I am a ghost. <laughs> Peter grabbed my arm and winced. With extraordinary gentleness, he reminded Rosie of her line. Two minutes to go now. This was our last chance. What you saw was the final take. Don't misunderstand. Fearless is Peter Weir's movie. He was no automaton following something by rote. I am very proud of his work. To read Fearless, you can't watch the movie. To see it, you can't read my book. I showed those scenes and told this commonplace story of movie-making troubles for a second reason. To correct a misunderstanding that exists throughout the world about writers and movies. Everything in that sequence, the girls with big hair prancing by two teenage boys, the father overloaded with Christmas gifts, the child scolded for dropping his ice cream, and finally, a woman whose son is dead, smelling the hair of a stranger's baby and not being noticed, were all written, first in the novel, Fearless, and then in the screenplay. They were written by, uh, what's his name? I can't remember, and even if I could, I, I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> Thanks. We had a wonderful plan for how this was all going to wind up, and it involved chairs and body microphones for the panelists, all kinds of things that we're now going to do without, just, just to save time. So I'd like to ask the panelists if they wouldn't mind coming up and just sitting on here. They, so she's, Roberta has some portable microphones that we can use, and we'll take some questions if anybody has any. Uh, if they don't, I'll ask one. But somebody must. Ah. And well, let's wait till everybody gets settled, and then you, you just need to shout, okay? Uh, 
Is everyone okay? Yes, sir. Fly me to. I wanted to feel like Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, well, uh, no novel ideas come to me so rarely, um, but when they come, I know they're novels, uh, and I can't tell you why. Basically, if something comes to me like, "Hey, I got a great idea for a story," just just everything from the "Hey," you know, it just says this is a screenplay, you know. Um, <laughs> You know, if, if, if I get involved in, 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 a, in a real uh, sort of moral dilemma or, or uh, and I'm absorbing uh, a side of life that I, I think I, would, I, would, I couldn't live with myself if I subjected it to group marketing decisions, then I know I have a novel. You know, but it, you know, it took me, it take me eight years between my last two novels, and now it's some on my third year, and I haven't started another one yet. But I mean, basically, screenplays. I mean, you know, the dir the dirty secret of everybody who sh shits all over Hollywood, like me, is that we also love it. You know, and it's kind of fun writing that first draft. You know, it's just getting whacked after that. That's all. Yeah. Oh, does anyone? I'm sorry. Does anyone else want to answer that? Yes. Um, is, I, I don't have eight years between novels. I've written a novel almost every year for the past thirty years, and uh, published them. I I probably have. Uh, Eight years between my screenplays, but I, I would say that uh, uh, it's it's the way you imagine the world. Uh, uh, a screenplay often seems to me to be about one thing intensely, and uh, and uh, or pursuing maybe one idea or the three ideas that uh, Paul Schrader mentioned. But a novel is about everything. It's about everything. It's about the whole world. It's about a lot of characters. It's about all your emotions. It comes from uh, deep within you, and it's a complete surprise. But the main thing, which I, is what I said, is that uh, a novel has no direction. No one tells you what to write. You, it's, it's interdirected. It's an occupation. It's, uh, it may go on for, for two or three years. Uh, no one changes it. If you have any sense at all, no one, no one messes around with it. And it, it is uh, you. It, it is an accurate representation of a way you feel or a way that you see the world. I think that a novel is essentially... Um, b a, study of, of character or emotion, but as I say, it comes from within. But it, it is uh, deeply personal and not messed around with. How you get the idea uh, is another question. What, it, what the result is, though, is it, is it, in, it is entirely yours. Um, this lady was going to ask something. Can you speak a bit louder? Sorry.
it wasn't I who said it. It was World Susan Isaacs who said that. The question was, in view of the idea that World War II uh, novels are not, or movies are not considered commercially feasible, what would you make of the success of Schindler's List? Uh, either of you, if you'd like, because it was Susan Isaacs' original thought there. Um, well, I, you know, I said it, and that was my experience when uh, once they had spent this ridiculous amount of money for shining through, they suddenly were afraid of it. Um, but I think that's their problem. I, I think um, World War II was fascinating, the Civil War is fascinating, and uh, 12th century England is fascinating. It depends on the story. It could also be boring as hell. Uh, mm -hmm. Schindler's List is about war and, and, and about so many, well, I won't go into all, you know, sing its praises here. I, it's not necessary. But um, the point is, it's, it's a wonderful movie, and it's a story, and it's about people who are fascinating. Um, you care about them, you're interested in. So th there's, there's nothing, um, this is their cliches. This is the, these are business cliches, studio cliches, the finance community's cliches. And we don't have to buy them because that inhibits us as storytellers, as directors, as, as creators. Why accept somebody else's limitations? I mean, we have enough of our own limitations waking up and facing an empty page each day. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> We've got a special medal for you later. <laughs> It's about, it's about a 12-year-old boy who's left home without his parents. <laughs> Who would like to answer that? Would someone I'll like? Try. Actually, you need you need you need to be lucky. You need to have someone who is powerful enough who will let you do it. That's really the straight answer. Uh, if uh, if there isn't a powerful filmmaker who the studios will simply let go, you're not going to be able to hang on to your book because it'll go into a committee process ultimately. Um, if and even then, you're at the mercy of that filmmaker. If he decides at some point or she decides that they want to get rid of the novel completely, whatever you care about, and it will go. Um, but if not, if you can form a real collaboration with a particular filmmaker, then you do have to find, it's what many of panelists have said, movies are much shallower. They cannot have the subplots that novels have. They have to find the one theme and stick to it. Uh, a lot of it is stripping out subplot, ideas, giving up on most of Fearless, the novel, for example, takes place in New York City, and a lot of it is about the character's relationship to New York City. The movie takes place in San Francisco. People who really wanted the movie to be a documentary of my novel 
get upset about that, but actually the novel is only about a section of, the movie is only about a section of the novel, and it does that section very faithfully. Um, and that's really, I think that's been said before, really that's what you have to do. You really have to pick out, as Paul said, the movie and the novel. And then you've got to have somebody with an awful lot of power to protect it. We have time for two more questions, turns out. Yeah, I, we, you know, um, if, I, if I right now was selling my dramatics rights to close relations for a buck 25, none of you would bid. Um, it's okay, it was a good novel. Um, it worked as a novel. The point I think we have to do as novelists is to distance ourselves from the movies. As novelists, and someone brought this up, we're God. We're creating a universe where um, we're making people come to life, we're giving them their hair color, their politics, their sexuality, we're designing their homes, we're putting up the wallpaper in their bathroom. We're doing everything. And we, when we're finished, we have, it may be a flawed universe, and we may be second-rate gods, but it's still a universe. And if you start to think, how can I make this appealing so that someone will want to buy it, um, you know, what can I do to make it cinematic? You are immediately beginning to compromise your vision and your authority as God. And what you're going to get by doing that is probably a third-rate novel and a lousy movie. Yeah, uh, I just want to add, add this. You, you said, what novel uh, do you wish someone would make into a movie? Uh, Robert Coover once said that the goal of a modern novelist is to write a book that cannot be adapted into a movie. <laughs> And I think that uh, the novel I like best is the one that cannot be adapted into a movie. Would anyone else like to answer that, by the way? Anyone have a novel they want to mention? Yes, last question. Yes. Well, see, my, my, I've acted in seven movies. <laughs>